All right. This week, <clears throat> I was reading through a study. It was um, one of the latest studies in a series of, of different scientific studies that have come out about the history of mankind and the relationship between belief in moralizing God or gods and the development of complex societies. And it's always interesting reading these, especially um, when they're written for, by a Westerner, because they start with this uh, grandiose uh, net, kind of including all world religions, both ancient and modern. And by the time they get halfway down to their analysis, you realize, oh, yeah, no, they're really just talking about Christianity. Um, they're not really talking about all world religions. They're really, when they say moralizing God, they mean the God that we profess to believe in in Christianity. And, and most of these studies, and as this was the case, are authored by atheists or agnostics. And so it's especially interesting to read them because they're writing about how belief affects a person's life. Now, they don't know what how belief affects a person's life because they don't believe. And so they are coming into this study or this writing with a set of presuppositions. Now, to define a presupposition... In a, a bit of a paraphrased way, a presupposition is an assumption that a person has, um, and in this case, often is the case, builds their entire study on without realizing that they're making that assumption. And so the case of this, of, of atheists, of this atheist or agnostic author, uh, writing about what believers or what uh, people who believed in God actually believed and how that affected their life, was basing their, their assumption of what that meant on with their interactions of other Christians. And so this serves as a mirror, right? And this is, this was the, this is the part that was really interesting to me because as I'm reading through this and he's making all of these assertions about what belief does and how it affects a person's life, I, I started to realize, ah, yes, he's making a very simple assumption about what it means to believe in God. And that assumption was so interesting to me, and it was very challenging to me because it, it, it acted as a mirror for myself. Because in order for him to know this, in order for him to, to uh, understand this and to see it in this way, he had to see it and interact with it and experience it from people who did believe. And so when we see the assumptions that he's making about belief, what we're seeing is a reflection of how we act out, how we speak about, how we profess belief in God in our daily lives. In fact, we're seeing through his assumptions, through his presuppositions, our own assumptions about what it means to believe in God. And the assumption that he made in this study, the assumption that the several other studies that I've read on this topic that have come out in the past five years, all made was that belief in God believes or entails believing in a higher power or higher being that is reactionary. That is, that God, basically all summed up to you know, for the too long didn't read portion of this, he was assuming that when we believe in God, that means that we believe that God reacts to what we do. So if we do bad things, God punishes us. If we believe that we do good things, then we'll believe that God will reward us. And this specifically is applied in terms of the afterlife. And that's how he sees it played out. That's how he uh, uh, interpreted the data from ancient religions and, and the development of complex societies uh, as his framework, as his grid work, in that um, God reacts 
to what we do. We act, and then God responds. And that's a really con- it was a really convicting and, and interesting thing to examine in my own life that thinking that do I profess and do I act as though God waits for my actions, that God waits for our actions and responds to them. Because that's such an incredible burden to bear. It puts all of the responsibility of life on us. If, if we want something good to happen in life, well, then I have to make it happen. Right, And God will respond to my actions that therefore enable this good thing to happen. If something goes badly, it's because I didn't do well enough. It's a reflection upon me as a person. And this leads to this eternal cycle of, of self-condemnation and shame. Our best is never perfect. And the smallest thing that we do bad detracts from our worth. But, but... The thing that I, I hope that you are screaming at your television right now, or and per, maybe you're hearing this for the first time, every single passage in the Bible, every single one, every story, every epistle that was written says the exact opposite. It says not that God responds to our actions, but that God acts and we respond. We are called to respond to God's provision, not the other way around. Now, that's some nice things to say, and that's kind of our big idea for today. Um, and in the passage for today, I get an illustration of kind of what this looks like in two diff- very different lives. We have a man who has nothing, enjoying the greatest of all things, and a man who has everything... <laughs> who fears all things. And that difference is how they view the action of God in their lives. And I hope to explore this and to show this with you um, in our passage for today. But first, before we dig in, would you pray with me? Dear Father, as we open up your word, as we look into the Scripture for today, we ask for your Holy Spirit. May you be working in our hearts and our minds. May you be affecting, um, may you be affecting what you have done on us that we may grow closer in our relationship with you and that you might be glorified. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right. So. Our passage for today, after that long and complicated introduction, hopefully you followed me. If you didn't, I'll give you more chances to come along and hop on board. Here we go. So we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 24, and we're going to read, starting in verse 1, and we're back with the story of David, continuing on from where we left him. And so here we read this, starting in verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness in Ed Gedi. And then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats rocked. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. And now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. 
And then David arose and he carefully and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. And so David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Now afterward, David also arose and he went out of the cave and called after Saul, My Lord, the king! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and he paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of the men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For the, by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom is the king of Israel come out? Why do you, after whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. A lot there. So David's right where we left him. He's sitting in this cave. He's surrounded by the outcasts of society. And Saul is hunting him. Saul has gathered a massive force to come down, hunt, and kill David. And he's gotten tipped off to where David is. And so he goes there. However, however, David is presented with the most unique of situations. First, the man who is responsible for all of David's suffering, all of his persecution, is at his mercy. Now, think about this for a second. How often do you get the chance for all of your suffering, everything that has gone wrong in your life, <laughs> to be embodied by one person, first and foremost, but secondly, for that to be at your mercy? Saul has unknowingly come into the very cave where David was hiding to relieve himself, to go to the bathroom. And here is David's chance. Here's his chance to end his misery, to end his suffering. He kills Saul and David becomes king. He's the next anointed king and he has the force and the goodwill of the people and he can take over the kingdom and take his spot on the throne. If he lets David go, who knows how much longer David will live and, or Saul will live and continue to hunt David. In fact, his men, his men even identify this as God's provision, right? We were talking about how, how the difference between thinking of, of us acting and God's responding and thinking of God providing and us responding to God. Well, David's men are saying, here, God has provided this for you. He's provided your chance to end your persecution. But David responds. And he responds not just to the situation in front of him, but he responds to all of God's provision. Because God, not just that God put Saul in this cave at David's mercy, God has also given the law. He's given the Ten Commandments and all of the laws that we read in, in Exodus and Leviticus and in Numbers and Deuteronomy. And David knows 
that God has given the law not to murder. And so even though, even though it seems like God has provided this simple way out, because it breaks, because it, con- it contradicts, it goes against one of God's other provisions for him, David does not do it. He goes and he merely cuts off a piece of Saul's robe and he does not permit his men to attack, to attack Saul. He doesn't just persuade them. The word persuade in the English that this verse our translation uses is a little weak. Um, the, the Hebrew word is more about, be more apt to be saying that David tore them a new one. He, he, he said, he tore them apart and said, you will not attack Saul. Which is important. Hold that for thought for a second. So David's cut off this piece of the robe and he, he brings it back and yet his heart is struck because God has given him this conviction that even doing that, even cutting off the robe was too much. Which seems like an overreaction, right? He just, he, he cut off his robe. That, he cut off a little piece of his clothing. Why, why does the Bible make such a big deal about that? Well, throughout this book, and has happened in, in a couple other scenes, the tearing of the royal robes has been symbolic of the kingdom being torn apart or torn away from Saul. And only God has the power and the authority to do that. David does not. And so God convicts David that that was too much. And David responds. David responds by repenting of even tearing the robe. Seems minor, seems trivial, seems like the smallest thing. But David was faithful even in that. But now we get to the overarching provision that God has here. David has this choice here. Saul's left. He's out of the cave. What does David do? Does he stay in this cave and one, stay safe and keep himself and his men safe? Or, or does he go out and he confronts Saul, seeks reconciliation with his fellow countrymen, with his father-in-law? And put everyone in danger, right? Because Saul has a massive force that would quickly and without much effort overwhelm David and his force. What does David do? Verse 8, David gets up and he goes out and he calls after Saul. And he says to Saul, Saul, look, look. I had the opportunity to kill you, and I did not. All right, so how is God providing in this? Where is God's provision? It seems like you have to do some mental gymnastics to do this. Well, isn't this just David acting? Isn't he the one acting and hoping that the response goes well? How is he responding to God? Well, according to verses 12 and 15... He was responding to the Lord's very, very specific provision. In verse 12, we read this. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. In verse 15, may the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. David is not acting and hoping that the Lord will help him. No, David is saying, the Lord has promised me. The Lord has given his promise. He has provided me with the assurance that he is in control. Throughout the words of Scripture that have come before David's time, 
He knows that God is the King of Kings, that God is the perfect judge, that justice will come from God perfectly. And so he responds to God's provision, to God's assurances, to God's promises of who he is, of what he does and how he acts, and puts his life in God's hands, saying that whatever will be done, I know that God has acted, he has provided for me, and he will continue to do so. To put this in in maybe today's terms, he's trusting that God is the perfect lawyer, the perfect judge, the perfect jury, and the perfect peace enforcer. And he's in charge of everything. And David is willing to respond to that promise and put his hands, his life in God's hands. And we see the example of of David's trust and provision as he writes about this situation in verses 6 and 7 of Psalm 54. He says, With a free will offering I will sacrifice to you. I will give thanks to your name, O Lord, for it is good. Right? This is his action. But it's not David acting first. It's David acting in response to what he says in verse 7. For God has delivered me from every trouble. And my eye has looked in triumph my enemies. God delivered David from trouble and David responded to God's deliverance with free will offerings, with sacrifice, with thanks to God's good name. In this scene, in this whole scene that happened in the cave, God gave to David one the promise and the revelation of his sovereignty, saying he gave to David the promise that I am God, I am in control. He gave to David his law to abide by. And he gave to David the opportunity to show the whole nation of Israel how David will act when he becomes king. He will not seek justice through shortcuts, He will not put blood of innocent on his hands. He will not be merciless. He will not be cruel. Instead, he will follow God and respond to the provision that God gives. Now, David wasn't perfect in his response and just that little bit that in our mindset of cutting off the road, but he did view God's provision as the leader of his response rather than his own action as the leader of God's response. And God's provision in these areas has not changed for us today. These things that God has provided to David in this passage hold true for us today. But it's even greater, right? We have it even greater because of what happened on that cross, because of Jesus, the reality of him. And so God provides for us Himself as the perfect King of Kings, the one who is in control of all, the one who will bring justice. But then not only that, He also provides Himself and His life and His teachings and His life 
that we get to strive after his law so that we know what it looks like to live in the manner of Jesus and the opportunities to show and to tell the world what life looks like in Jesus. Paul sums up this whole shift in our thinking and it feels like merely semantics, but if there's a massive impact in our lives between thinking of, of, Our action drives God's response to God's action drives our response. And he sums it up at the beginning of Colossians chapter 3 when he says this. He says, set our minds on the thing of heaven, things of heaven, where Christ is, not on the earthly things. Paul's exhorting us, and as the Bible does throughout all of Scripture, it exhorts us to seek to discern God's actions, see where God is acting, see where he is provided, see what God has done, And in every area of life, we are called to respond to that. First and foremost, right? Where is God's provision? Where do we start when we're thinking about this? The most obvious one, the easiest one, is right there on the cross. Obviously not this cross. But on the cross where Jesus died, where he died, and we we are promised forgiveness for our sins, which breaks that whole entire paradigm of our actions will be responded to and judged by God in the afterlife. No, Jesus broke that because he took that all of that upon himself. And so that presupposition that author had from the very beginning in his paper is, is broken just by the mere reality of the cross. But along with that, God gave us, he provided for us his own words, the Bible, that we might respond to what he has said and what he has written. And in accordance with those, God has provided us with the Holy Spirit. That as we are acting, as we are seeking to respond to his word, respond to the reality of Jesus' death and resurrection, that he might guide us and show us how we can live our lives in light of his provision. All right, now that we've looked at David, we looked at at David, this Christ-like figure in, in Israel's history, now we get to see the opposite reaction. Going on in verse 16, we read this. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice, And wept. And he said to David, You are more righteous than I. For you have repaid me with good, whereas I have repaid you with evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you surely shall be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. And then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Saul has been thoroughly humbled. He's been shown what a truly righteous man will do and act how a truthfully righteous man will act. 
and he recognizes his own unrighteousness. And he sees the action of the Lord. He recognizes the Lord's provision. He sees his own shortcomings. And, oh, he's just so close. The whole Bible, all of Scripture is calling out to Saul, Repent! Repent! Ah, that's the next step. The Lord has shown Himself to you. You've seen His actions. You've seen that you don't measure up. You've seen that you need His forgiveness. So, so repent. Ah, as the Bible says, it says later on in the New Testament, it says, if we confess He, that is God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Saul even acknowledges that no man on earth would do what David just did if it had not been for the way that he follows God. Yet, Saul, for whatever reason, does not make this seemingly inevitable step to confess his own sin, to proclaim his need for God's forgiveness, and to make a covenant to live for God from there forth. Instead, Instead of seeing that, and instead of doing that, Saul looks to what God's response is going to be. Instead of seeing what God has already done and responding to that, God, Saul looks to what he has done and how God is going to respond. So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king. Saul is saying, God is going to strip the kingdom of Israel away from my family for what I've done. And he's going to give it to you, David, to reward you for what you've done. And he's not wrong. That's the thing. He's not wrong. God's absolutely going to do this. He's going to respond to David's actions just as God responds to our actions. Hence, that's why we pray because our actions do have an effect, but, but God calls us to respond to what He has already done, what He has already provided, not the other way around. And where do you need to hear that message most? What part of your life, what part of your life do you feel, and, and there's a lot of parts in my life where I feel like this, that I need to do well. I need to reach a standard. I need to measure up in order to receive God's blessing, in order for Him to look and say, well done, my good and faithful son. Rather than seeing that part of life and looking at what God has provided all around you and responding to that, out of thanksgiving. Do you need to hear that in your relationship? Or maybe in your singleness? Maybe you need to hear that when it comes to raising your kids? Or is it in your job? Maybe it's in your character. 
This is one that we often overlooked. We, we constantly hear and feel the need that we need to be humble. We need to be patient. We need to be kinder. We need to be stronger. We need to be more brave. We need to be more relatable, be more in touch with our emotions, be something, be that, be all of these things. Yet, instead of striving and seeing all of these things that you need to do, that you need to do in order to be a better person, look and see what God has provided already. He's provided us His Word to teach us, His Holy Spirit to guide us, and the community of the church to come alongside us. So that as we live, we may grow in our fellowship with Jesus. Not seeking to be better people. But seeking to love, respond to the love that Jesus has already shown us. Maybe in, in this particular time and moment, I'll speak to this. It's in the conversation our world is having right now around racial relationship, racial relations and reconciliation. Do you feel like we need to be defensive? We need to justify or absolve ourselves of, of the accusations of privilege or the accusations of racism? To keep yourself or ourselves measuring up. Or maybe, maybe we're feeling the need to do something extraordinary in order to solve this problem. Instead, let me invite you to respond to the provision that God has given us here in Christ Church quite uniquely. In the world sense and in our nation sense, God has provided a cultural-wide call for all of our black brothers and sisters who are made in God's image to be honored. But even more specifically within our own church, God has provided us with relationships with the Wayfarers in ministry, with Pastor Danita, with Alberta, with Pandora, and with Renewing Life Church, our sister church over in Ferguson, with Pastor Terry, Lachey, all of them. And instead of feeling the need to do something and feeling the need to, to, to um, enact something so that God will respond and look at us kindly and, and history will look at, back at us and say, ah, oh, good job, you did well. No, 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 no. God has provided us with this unique opportunity to be in relationship with, to worship with, to be friends with our black brothers and sisters who the call is going out to be honored, to be heard, and to be loved. And so let us respond to that, not in the sense of we need to go out and do something, right? There are actions that are out to do, but our response as to that which God has provided right around us to amplify their voices. To amplify the way in which they are honoring and glorifying God so that in this conversation, this may be one not of what we need to do so God will look kindly on us, but of what God has provided and that we get the opportunity to respond to. God has provided the standard for justice. He has provided the standard for which all, all of humanity 
has been made in his image and should be honored as such. And we get to respond in kind. Lastly, though, maybe you're like me. Maybe the place that you need to hear this message most is the place that I need to hear this message most. Every single day. That's in my relationship with God. So often I'm thinking about myself as a pastor. I, I think of all the things I need to do. I need to read these books. I need to make phone calls. I need to pour into the scripture. I need to think of a, a good illustration for Sunday morning or a good way to preach this sermon or a captive way to, to bring all of us together or, or to do something innovative and creative. And I need to do all of these things so that God can be glorified instead of seeing that God has glorified his son already. God has made the ultimate provision. I don't need to do anything for God to be glorified. God will take care of that. I don't need to defend him. I don't need to try to make and find new ways to make him relevant, to make him seem applicable to today's situation. God has provided everything that I need to know that I'm loved by him, to know that you're loved by him. God has provided his son. He has provided himself and he has provided the ultimate, the ultimate thing that he could give us, which is eternal life. How do we respond? Let's pray. Dear Father, show us. Show us to be able to discern what you have done in our lives already. In many ways, in many ways, show us how to be content. Tell our hearts that you have done what is needed. That no action is required of us, but that we get the honor of responding to you. Pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.